We interrupt your broadcast to bring you an episode from the Stephen or Else Network of Truly Epic Podcast. Find more shows at StephenOrElse.com. You're listening to Just Another Fanboy Presents The Death of Superman, and this is episode number 15, The Legacy of Superman. And welcome to Just Another Fanboy Presents. I'm your host. My name is Steven. And today we roll into week 15 of the epic crossover event, The Death and Return of Superman. And today we're looking at a one-shot special. It's called The Legacy of Superman. This issue hit the stands 30 years ago this week on February 2nd, 1993. It had a cover price of $2.50. And this is one of those anthology comics, and it focuses on other heroes in Metropolis or vigilantes, whatever you want to call them. So we're going to take this one story at a time. There's five of them. But before we start, I do want to talk about the cover real quick. It has a great, great, great cover by Arthur Adams, who, if you recognize the name, that's all I got to say. You know, it's going to be a great cover. And it features... Superman, who kind of takes up most of the cover, and then in front of him, he's kind of a, a background. In front of him, we've got five of the characters that show up in these five stories. Guardian, Thorn, Gangbuster, Sinbad, and Wave Rider. I just really like this cover. All right, so the first story is called Guardians of Metropolis. It is a 11-page story that features the Guardian. They're all 11 pages, so I'm not going to tell you that every single time. But this one was written by Carl Kessel. The artist was Walt Simonson. Letters by John Workman. And the colorist was Glenn Whitmore. So let me tell you what happened in the issue. All of these synopses that I'm going to be giving you during this episode came from dcfandom.com with some slight rewrites by me. Are you ready? Let's begin. The scientists at Cadmus have finally translated the DNA of Superman into human terms. Director Westfield immediately demands the data, but the scientists are reluctant to give him the info right away. If Westfield is so eager to protect Metropolis, Guardian proposes the simple solution of cloning him, an army of Guardians, to fill Superman's shoes. Westfield takes Guardian to see Carl Packard's latest creation, Auron. Auron is the second clone of Jim Harper, but this new version has super strength, indestructible alloyed metallic skin, and he is powered by the sun. He also has a jetpack that's cybernetically linked with his mind. Westfield orders Auron to get the DNA data disc, but the Newsboy Legion, spying upon the whole scene, make off with the disc, and now Auron is in hot pursuit. Double X gives Auron a psychic blast that slows him down a little, but he eventually catches up to the boys. The boys appeal to that part of Auron that is Jim Harper. Auron retrieves the disc and downloads its data within his memory. Westfield demands the disc back, but Auron destroys it, claiming that vital information like that should not be in careless hands. Auron flies off into space, angering Westfield and proving 
that clones of Jim Harper could get the job done. All right. Because there's five different stories here, I may focus on different aspects of each story. I don't want to spend too much time on each story because we could be here forever if that's the case. But first and foremost, art by Walt Simonson. That's really all you need to say because I am a huge fan of Walt Simonson. I love his Thor run from the 80s. In fact, I'm kind of in the middle of reading that right now. And so the art in this story just feels nice and familiar to me, like a like a good old pair of warm slippers. This character of Auron, however, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. A-U-R-O-N. They say that he is a clone of Jim Harper, which the Guardian is a clone of Jim Harper. But Auron is more of a freaking android or something. It's he is a sheathed in this metallic metal. It's been uh, programmed to accept orders from Westfield. And when it finally retrieves the data disk, it downloads it to its internal memory. So it's, well, it's like Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, he's more machine now than man. I'm not going to, I'm, that was a poor imitation. I'm not going to even going to, I'm not even going to put my heart into it because I know I can't do it. But the Newsboy Legion, who they just crack me up for some reason, they are the actual, they're clones of the original Newsboy Legion who have grown up to also become directors of Cadmus. They are also scientists. But the Newsboy Legion here, like I said, clones of them, they're still teenagers. And they managed to make off with that data disk and escape into the underground tunnel system of Cadmus. And Aron, of course, catches up with them. And this is actually out on the surface. They, um, at one point, steal some kind of giant rocket car of some sort and they get up to the surface and they're they're speeding through habitat and that's when Aaron catches up with them Aaron or Aaron or I don't know but the newsboy legion like the synopsis says appeals to the Jim Harper side of Aaron it's it's like they're telling him look we know that you're pretty much a robot and you are programmed to take these orders but if you are a clone of Jim Harper, then some of him is still in you, and he was a good man, and you need to do the right thing, and that's what he ends up doing. Uh, but of course, he copies all of Superman's digital DNA to his internal hard drive, and then crushes the disc, and then just flies off into space. Not really sure where he's going, but as he is, he's flying away. He says, "Superman's DNA shouldn't fall into careless hands, Guardian." It's in my computer mind now, and I will protect it with my life. Jim Harper is our link. We will never be far from each other's thoughts, Guardian. Should Metropolis ever need a Superman? And then he just flies off into space. No idea why. Don't know where he's going. It's kind of a weird ending to this story, but it was fun. This is probably my favorite of the five stories that show up in this anthology. So... I go kind of back and forth on should this have been first? If it's the best story, you want a reader to get that good stuff right up front so they don't put the book down. But at the same time, if you read the best story first, the rest of the book is just going to be a big disappointment. And the rest of it wasn't a big disappointment to me, but the, the other stories just weren't weren't really great. So let's move on to the next one. It's called Sister Act 
And it's a rose and thorn story. It was written by Roger Stern, penciled by Dennis Rodier, inks by Andy Parks, letters by Albert de Guzman, and the colorist was Glenn Whitmore. After a brisk walk, Rose Forrest walks into her house to discover a burglar stealing her VCR. The police come and take her statement while a security door is installed. While watching the nightly news about the increase in crime since Superman's death, the Thorn personality takes over Rose's mind and takes her through a passage to her secret lair where she dons her costume to search for the thief. She tracks a couple of thieves who send her to a fence named Cherokee. Cherokee is clean, but hears word on the street of a new guy who operates out of various warehouses. The thief who robbed Rose is there trying to sell her VCR. Thorne takes down the operation single-handedly, but not before calling the police to the site. The next morning, the phone wakes up Rose. It's the police who say that they've caught her thief, retrieved her VCR, and that they had help from Thorne. On her nightstand lamp is a note from Thorne telling her not to be afraid, leaving Rose all the more confused. But not any more confused than I was, This is a character I had never heard of before reading this issue. There's two of those characters in this in this book, Rose slash Thorn and Sinbad. We'll get to Sinbad in a bit. But I found it. I mean, I've said it before. I am not steeped in DC history. I was not reading much of Superman before the death of Superman. And so. My first thought was, all right, well, obviously, this is a character that was created in that time between partway through John Byrne's run, which is when I stopped reading, and then the death of Superman, which is when I started reading. But no, once I looked into it, there were actually two versions of Rose and Thorn. The first version made her first appearance in Flash Comics number 89 with the cover date of November 1947. This is a golden age character, but a character that did not survive the golden age. The second version was created by Robert Kaniger and artist Ross Andrew, and she showed up for the first time in Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 105, which is cover dated October 1970. And this is the version we have here with us now. Of course, some of you may be asking, but 1970, that was pre-crisis. How can this be the same character post-crisis? Well, because, and I know this because I just finished reading Crisis, some of the characters that were pre-crisis that remained as part of the DC universe post-crisis for much of, well, I don't want to say for for a lot of them. I don't know how many, but for some of them, their backstory, their history, none of that changed. All that changed is their memory of the universe that they now live in. As far as they're concerned, there's always only ever been one Earth and one one universe. There's not a multiverse. So that's why this character from the well, 70s would be the Bronze Age, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, I again, I didn't know anything about this character. So I looked her up and I got some information from the Wikipedia or the Wikipedia. And I'll read you. What it says here, Rosen Rose Forrest is the daughter of Metropolis police officer Phil Forrest, who was killed by a criminal gang named the 100. When Rose went to sleep, 
her thorn personality would emerge and stalk the streets as a vigilante, attempting to bring the 100 to justice. When she succeeds in bringing the 100 to justice, the thorn personality subsides. Eventually, however, the gang escapes and forms another group called the 1000, and her alternate personality resurfaces. She has since worked with Superman and Booster Gold to try to put these criminals behind bars. She was briefly under the control of Lord Satanus. Thorne has no actual superpowers, but she is highly athletic and learned martial arts from her father. She's known to carry a pair of combat daggers, a barbed whip, and a bandolier of tiny thorn-shaped weapons, some of which contain explosives, miniature smoke bombs, or blinding magnesium flares. All right, so they specifically point out in this description that Thorne has no superpowers. And a lot of that is because the first version of Thorne from the Golden Age did have superpowers. She could control plants. And apparently at one point she was obsessed uh, with Green Lantern and uh, wanted to get her a piece of that. And I believe I actually read, I don't remember now, but I think she married him at one point, but she didn't survive the golden age. At at some point in there, she actually committed suicide, but we're not talking about her. We're talking about this version. And I just find this character very odd. I, 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 as I said, I'm not steeped in DC knowledge or history, but I find it odd that I had never heard of this character before this issue. And I have never heard of any appearances from her after this issue. There were, I can see that from the Wikipedia, the various storylines she's been in, but this character has only blipped upon my radar once, and it's in this story, which, eh, it was all right, because I'd never heard of her before, and sometimes it's really kind of hard to get into short stories. They don't, there's not enough room there to, to really get to know a character, so coming into this story cold, basically, I uh, didn't really care for it all that much. So how about we just move on then? What do you say? Story number three is called Gangbuster of Suicide Slum. And guess who it stars? Yeah, Gangbuster. It was written by Jerry Ordway. Pencils by Dennis Janky. Inks was Mike McLan. Mike McLan. M-A-C-H-L-A-N. McLan. That's what I'm going to say. Letters were done by John Costanza and Albert de Guzman, and the colorist was Glenn Whitmore. Gangbuster violently attacks a group of thugs and mob enforcers. He then makes a call to Inspector Henderson to come and make an arrest. Henderson, while running a trace on the call, tells him that due to his excessive violence when taking down perps, it's next to impossible to get an arrest to stick. Gangbuster hangs up the phone before the trace can be made, but Henderson knows where he might find him. Later in Centennial Park, Henderson finds Gangbuster by the Superman Memorial statue where the vigilante is leaving a trussed-up thug for the police. Henderson tells him that he knows his identity and that the perps he attacked will probably press charges against him. He says that his actions are vengeance, not justice, and he hands Gangbuster a bus ticket and tells him to leave town or else the law, including himself, will come after him. All right. So this is another one. I, I mean, I didn't. It wasn't great. None of the rest of these are great. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Don't want to bring this whole thing down. But the thing I found most odd about this Gangbuster story, however, is that, again, like Thorne and 
well, like Sinbad, that'll come next. I'd never heard of Gangbuster before the death of Superman, and I don't recall seeing this character showing up in any of the books I've read since the death of Superman. So for me, these characters that are being featured heavily in this issue, which is called the legacy of Superman, they're trying to say that these are heroes from Metropolis that are, are, are trying to fight the good fight since Superman is not there. It feels weird to me because to me, these are characters that, you know, in my mind are only part of the death of Superman and very tangentially. I know that's not the case because of course I, you know, I'm looking at information on DC fandom and Wikipedia and whatnot. And I see that they were in various other stories, but it doesn't feel that way to me because, uh, I've yet to run into any of those stories. Now, the gangbuster in this story does feel very different than the gangbuster that has shown up during the death of Superman storyline so far. This gangbuster is very obsessed and super violent and full of rage. And while we get a peak of that during the death of Superman storyline that came before this, you know, he throws that remote control and, and breaks the TV when Cat uh, Grant's kid is acting like Superman is no big deal and the death of Superman is, is no big deal. And he does punch Inspector Henderson in front of the Superman memorial, but that's only because Inspector Henderson kind of snuck up on him. But I did not get the sense out of his few appearances that I've read so far that he was just this crazed, obsessed, ultra-violent kind of vigilante, but that's what we're getting here. I, I I got the sense that he and Henderson were kind of friendly toward each other, but no, nah, apparently not. And so that's the main reason I didn't care for this story too much. By the way, did I mention, you know, I know that I, know that I pointed out that in the, the Rose and Thorn story, Sister Act, I mentioned that Andy Parks was the inker. Andy Parks is a guy that, that I, I, I really like. He started off his comics career as an inker. This apparently was one of his first jobs. Um, he lives about 30 minutes away from me. I don't know where exactly. I know the town he's living in. I'm not trying to tell you I'm a stalker or anything. I just found, I just find it interesting when names that I see associated to some really big comics uh, are local. Anyway, he's a super nice guy. He's now writing. He doesn't do, I don't think he does any inking anymore unless it's like some kind of special favor or project. I think he's, he's stepped away from inking, but he does a lot of writing now. And he wrote, um, I don't remember the name of the book now that I think about it off the top of my head, but it's what, well, can't even think of the name of the movie. Now there's a Chris Hemsworth movie that's on Netflix. I'm going to have to look it up now. I think before I pull it up that it's called extraction, but we'll, we'll find out. Yes, it's called Extraction. It's a Chris Hemsworth movie. It hit uh, Netflix in 2020, and it's based off of a book, a comic that Andy Parks wrote. And in fact, Andy Parks, along with Joe and Anthony Russo, are credited uh, with writing the story for the movie. And there's a, another one coming to Netflix at some point. So I think that's pretty cool for him. But yeah, I backed up there for a second. Anyway, Gangbuster of Su Suicide Slum. Eh. You know, I've said it before, I've mentioned a number of times as we've been going through this whole funeral for a friend arc of the death of Superman that my memory has been fooling me into thinking that I remember this part of the story as being very boring 
and just a big slog to get through. And everything that I had been reading, however, was great. And I was really enjoying Funeral for a Friend. And I feel like this issue here and then the book that's going to come after it is what put those memories in my head. After reading through Funeral for a Friend the first and second time, the only thing that my mind clung to was a couple of not so great issues. And it ruined, apparently, my experience of Funeral for a Friend. Very strange. Anyway, let's go to story number four. It's called Funeral Pyres. It was written by William Messner Loeb's, penciled by Kurt Swan. The inks was by Joe Rubenstein. The letters by Bill Oakley and the colorist was Glenn Whitmore. Due to the absence of Superman, LexCorp has been hijacked three times in the past month by a group called the Terror Masters. Luther Jr. has a plan to take out the Terror Masters while keeping his own hands clean. One of his secretaries, Soraya, is the sister of the metahuman Sinbad. And despite public knowledge that Sinbad has lost his powers, Lex knows different. And so Lex has an employee infiltrate the Terror Masters and stage a robbery of heavy-duty firearms at LexCorp, killing a secretary and one of Soraya's co-workers in the process. The false guilt coming from Lex spurs Soraya to have Sinbad go after the criminals, just as Lex had planned. Sinbad and Soraya locate the Terror Masters, who are testing the gun. They fire upon Sinbad, but he is able to activate his force field, and he is only knocked unconscious. Suddenly, a hologram of Luther appears, telling the thugs that they're dead, as he has rigged the gun with an explosive device. The thugs then die in a fiery explosion. When Soraya finds Sinbad standing amongst the rubble, he tells her that he believes his shield, while blocking the blow of the device, backfired on the criminals, causing the explosions and killing everyone in the process. Feeling the guilt of their deaths weighing upon him, Sinbad and Soraya go home. So, again, another character that I, that I just don't remember ever running up against before the death of Superman or after. Uh, he was created in 1990, or at least his uh, first appearance was in Superman number 48, which has a cover date of 1990. He was created by William Messner Loeb's and Kurt Swan. So it's kind of neat that they got to do this story. And I looked him up just to find out a little bit about this dude. Now, they don't say it in the synopsis. Actually, they do. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So Soraya is Sinbad's brother. Sinbad's actual name is Davood, and their 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 last name is Nasur. Um, they are of Middle Eastern descent. They don't really give you any kind of uh, idea in this story where their family is originally from. But according to DCFandom.com, they lived in a place called, uh, well, in Metropolis, a neighborhood, an ethnic neighborhood, as the, the, as the entry says, uh, called Little Korak. Q-U-R-A-C, which like most DC locations, I'm going to assume this is not a real place. Uh, but Davud's family, Davud and Soraya, their family fled from Karak after his father and uncle had both been victims of the Shah's secret police. And then we learn here that Davud was among the people forever changed by the invasion. This is a um, 90s, late 80s, early 90s event 
that uh, I will eventually be talking about on event or else. Uh, but it says when the gene bomb was exploded, Davud, along with all those with latent metahuman powers, sickened. After a cure was found, Davud developed minor superpowers. He could float an inch above the ground and levitate smaller objects. And apparently, he's been kind of a thorn in the side of Lex Luthor and LexCorp uh, since he first came on the scene. This story was okay. I think I would consider this my third favorite of the whole group. Uh, while I didn't know anything about these characters going into this, and the art is a little eh, I don't, I don't know what's going on with Kurt Swan these days. I know his... No, his man, I cannot speak. I know that his name is associated with Superman, I believe, from like the old school days, or at least the Silver Age days. I mean, if he was a Golden Age artist, uh, he'd be pretty old by now, unless he was like four at the time. But I found his art rather stiff. The characters just seemed just seemed stiff and wooden. But beyond that, it was a pretty all right story. I, 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 I found the character of Sinbad very interesting. And I found Thorn interesting as well, but there's just something about that story I didn't, I just didn't care for it too much. It just seemed, I don't know, again, had I, the, the difference between these two stories is that I still found enjoyment out of this one, even though I knew nothing about Sinbad, whereas I didn't find a lot of enjoyment out of the Thorn story because I didn't know a lot about Thorn. And I think that's mainly because that story just is kind of your basic generic vigilante, super vigilante, costumed vigilante type story. Very kind of basic. And uh, coming into a story like that, that's, that's again, very generic with a character that I've never heard of, uh, who also seems somewhat generic. I mean, they've got that whole split personality thing going where Rose has no idea that she is Thorn. And uh, that's that's slightly interesting, but I don't know. Didn't it just it just felt very generic? I'll just I'll just leave it at that. All right. The final story in this issue is called Vanishing Point. It was written and penciled by Dan Jurgens, inked by Trevor Scott, letters by John Costanza, colors by Glenn Whitmore. After completing his training, Wave Rider is taken to the Library of Time by the Linear Men to observe and document the last moments of Superman's life. Wave Rider cannot bring himself to let Superman be killed, so he sets off to change the event. Rider follows him and explains to Wave Rider how there are a lot of people just as great as Superman in different fields of life that could deserve the same treatment. Wave Rider sees Rider's point and restarts time to let things go on while both men watch Superman's last moments in sadness. Uh, I really wanted to like this one, but sometimes a time travel story, if it's not done well, it just it's just confusing. Wave Rider is apparently a future version of Rider, whoever the frick that is. And the entire depiction of the linear men's headquarters in the library of time just it just did not, it didn't do anything for me. It seemed, again, very basic. And I like the idea that Wave Rider learns that Superman dies in the past and he, he takes it upon himself to try to stop that from happening. But 
I don't know. I just don't think it was executed very well in this story. Again, they're short stories. It's hard to do a short story, especially a short comic book story, and have it have any kind of impact. It can be done. It's just not that easy. It's not as easy as some people might think. And this story here was trying to go for some, you know, the the emotional impact of these two men who could do something to save Superman, but know that this is kind of what was meant to happen. It's not it's not their responsibility to to fix things like this. And if they're going to fix this, why don't they stop everybody from dying? And uh, yeah, it was it's kind of they're trying to teach you a lesson and have this emotional impact of these men watching Superman die and not doing anything about it. And eh, it was all right. I Wave Rider, first of all, I he's from, I believe, the Armageddon storyline. I know he shows up. I feel like he shows up in Superman not long before the death of Superman. I feel like it's just a couple issues in before that. He that's when he shows up. But the 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 fact that he is all right, he's been training to be part of this linear men thing, which apparently are time travelers who keep an eye on the timeline. It's a very important post, a lot of responsibility there. And as soon as he completes his training, it's like, hey, you've completed your training. Come on over to the library of time. And they show him Superman's death on purpose to see how he will react. And of course, he just goes, oh, no, can't let that happen. I know I just learned not to do all this kind of stuff, but I'm going to break all the rules anyway. Yeehaw! And he takes off back in time. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like that. It's, I don't know. Dan Jurgens again, there's just something about his writing at times. He's very hit and miss for me. And I think at times when he is trying to teach a lesson, um, he has a, a certain agenda, a, uh, well, a lesson that he's trying to impart. I think he can be very heavy handed with his writing. Now, again, I'm going to say it again. It's an 11 page story. It's, it's, it's going to be really difficult not to be heavy handed with something like this. And it's, it's a lot of the reasons why a lot of people don't really care for anthology comics, especially anthology comics that are stories that are one and done 11 pages, a story, not here's the first 11 pages to the story. You'll get the next 11 pages next month. That's a little different. That's more of a serialized short story format, but telling the story beginning, middle and end trying to teach a lesson at the same time in 11 pages. Good Lord. That's, that's a lot of pressure. That's not easy to do. And I think the first ish, the, the, the first story did it pretty well. They did a pretty good job at it. And the rest of them, I don't think, well, the, the Rose and Thorn story, I don't think they did a bad job. I think they did everything that they could do in those 11 pages, but it just all felt very generic to me. Here's just you know, here's another superhero that is going out to fight crime, but she's not a superhero. She's she's street level. She doesn't have any powers, but she can kick butt and she's going to go out and stop bad guys in a costume because somebody that she loved died. Bad, 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 bad. You know, those get old after a while because <laughs> there's so many of them. But I don't know. I don't know what else there is to say about this. It's very much kind of a filler issue. You know, I talked about it in the last episode. Right now, we're at a period during the Death and Superman story arc where everything kind of, we get kind of a cliffhanger with issue number 77 of Superman, which 
which was released on January 19th, 1993. And then the very next week, no Superman titles. Ultimately, what we're looking at here is that Superman number 77 ends on a cliffhanger. It kind of, I don't think this, I don't think this is the end of the funeral for a friend arc, but it, it's almost like a mid season break for a television show because then technically, as far as the main story is concerned, we don't get back to it until Adventures of Superman number 500, which is from April 13th, 1993. So two months. And rather than have two months with nothing smack in the middle of this giant crossover event, they put out this, the uh, couple of filler issues, which Legacy of Superman here in February 2nd of 93. And then we're going to get Supergirl and Team Luther number one in, in March, March 9th, 1993, or for us, March 9th, 2023. But I don't, my memory of that one isn't great, but that doesn't mean that my memory is correct. But it's probably why my memory of Funeral for a Friend has been soured because smack dab in the middle of this incredible story that's going on, we get at least one confirmed for me issue that doesn't really have a lot to do with the story at hand, doesn't add anything to it, and gives you a bunch of stuff that, you know what, I really don't care about. <laughs> Hate to say that, but it's true. Now, with that being said, per the release schedule of The Death of Superman, the next four weeks, nothing comes out again until March the 9th. So, the way I have set up this show, ultimately what that would mean is that there will be no episodes of Just Another Fanboy Presents, The Death of Superman, for the next four weeks. However, I don't want the next four weeks to be just radio silence. I mean, you've still got Just Another Fanboy. You've still got The Superman Super Show. You've still got Event or Else. Those episodes will be coming out, but... I am going to try my darndest to squeeze a bonus episode in there. I have it scheduled for two weeks from the release date of this episode you're listening to right now. So February 16th. The problem is I don't, I don't really know what I'm going to talk about yet. There's a number of items. It's not like I don't have anything to talk about. I just have to decide if I'm going to talk about the audio drama, which means I would need to listen to it first, uh, which is not a problem. Uh, or if I'm going to talk about, there's a, a mini series that came out just before the direct to DVD death of Superman animated movie came out, not to be confused with the direct to DVD animated Superman doomsday movie. This is, uh, way more similar to the actual comic book storyline. And they actually did two movies, the death of Superman and the reign of the Superman. So they kind of put the first two acts in the first movie and then the second two acts in the second movie. But that movie is kind of set in the new 52 universe. So that tells you about when it came out. And so they released kind of a, uh, like a mini series online written by Louise Simonson that, well, I haven't read all of it yet, but it's, it ties into that movie. And I know the first issue, which I did read is kind of um, why, you know, what, why was, why was Superman not at once alerted to doomsday? What was he doing that, that, you know, and just kind of shows how his day was going and how uh, he was in the middle of a bunch of things. And that's why he wasn't immediately aware of what was happening with doomsday. But 
that movie that it's based on is again it it's similar to the comic book storyline but it for example the justice league is in it but it's the justice league that we kind of know nowadays it's got wonder woman and batman and green lantern and the flash and aquaman and hawkman well i don't know if aquaman's there but um and i really appreciated that in the movie because one of my biggest gripes at the time of this storyline is yeah we get the justice league trying to help superman out with doomsday but where are all the other heavy hitters of the dc universe because they're certainly not members of the Justice League. And this kind of answers that question. We get a bunch of, you know, we get kind of the big seven. And Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter, Green Lantern, Hawkman, even with the aid of a non-powered hero, Batman, they they cannot stand up to Doomsday. So basically what I'm saying here is uh, there should be an episode on February 16th, two weeks from today. I just, I'm not quite sure what it's going to be about yet. And then there will be two weeks off, February 23rd and March 2nd. We'll come back on March 9th for Supergirl and Team Luther. And then the schedule of releases goes on another four-week break, March 16th to April 6th. Nothing was released. However, that's not 100% true. The, the, the week after Supergirl and Team Luther came out, they, they actually published a magazine called News Time. And it is the same magazine that they were talking about earlier in the storyline where Jimmy, they're using a bunch of Jimmy's photographs of Superman through the years. It's like a tribute issue. It's Newstime would be DC's version of Time Magazine. And anytime somebody of any import dies, Time Magazine always does a tribute issue. And that's what this is, but it's for Superman. And they created a freaking magazine and they released it. So I, I have it and I want to talk about that. On March 16th, March 23rd, there will be no episode. March 30th, I have penciled in another bonus episode. I just have no idea what I'm going to talk about there, but I'm sure I'll think of something. April 6th, no episode. And then I tell you, I don't remember this reading at the time, but I have to imagine that this whole period really kind of annoyed readers because, again, you get this kind of cliffhanger at the end of Superman number 77, midway through January. Then you get nothing the next week. You get this legacy of Superman the week after that, two weeks after Superman 77. That doesn't add anything to the story. You get nothing for four weeks, and then you get Super Supergirl and Team Luther, which I don't remember, but I don't know if that added anything to the story. And then you get nothing else again until April 13th. So from January 19th to April 13th, you get nothing about the death of Superman. And then what do they do the very next week, April 20th? They don't release anything again. That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then they get four weeks of books coming out, Action Comics, then Superman, Man of Steel, then Superman, and then Adventures of Superman. And then they take another week off. There's a lot of breaks in this freaking crossover. I found that really weird. I mean, this is, I mean, looking at the schedule, this is an event that started... October 13th, 1992, and ends September 21st, 1993. That's almost a full year. Well, about 11 months. It is 53 weeks. But during those 53 weeks, they take 12 breaks. Out of those 53 weeks, there are 12 weeks in which nothing is released. Now, prior to Superman Man of Steel being created and published, that would have made sense because there were only three Superman titles 
being published each month. There was always going to be at least one week with no Superman. And for weeks, the those rare weeks or those rare months that had five comic book release days, then there would be two weeks out of the month that didn't have Superman. But with four titles, some of these breaks, I'm going to chalk up to uh, those rare months that have five comic book release weeks. But I don't know. I got to stop talking about it. I got to wrap this freaking episode up, folks. So just quickly to sum up, no episode next week. Come back February 16th and I'm going to have something for you that will not be part of the main storyline. It's going to be a bonus episode. Beyond that, folks, you want to leave me any feedback, there's a number of ways you can do it. All of that is in the show notes. Rather than spend the next 10 minutes talking about where you can go, it's all in the show notes. I will mention, however, that my Just Another Fanboy voice line at 785-318-6673. I recently got a notification from Google because that's a Google Voice phone number that said, basically, uh, you've had no activity on this number. If we don't see any activity over the next, I, I can't remember how many days, 30 days, then we are going to cancel your account and give this number to somebody else. And so I've had to, uh, every once in a while, every couple of days, I just send a text from my phone to that number just so it stays active. But it's there. Leave a voicemail. Send me a text. There's so many ways for you to provide feedback. And and I, I, I often lay awake at night sobbing and crying because I don't get a lot of feedback. And that makes me really sad. Beyond that, folks, see you in two weeks. I still haven't come up with a standard tagline to end these shows. So I'm just going to say... Goodbye. Goodbye. I'm a little drink of water here. That was quite tasty. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.